Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. from Quantlayer and thanks for listening to our 34th podcast. On this episode, Santiago Roel Santos from Eon joins us to talk about proof of stake and staking more broadly. We speak about his background in investing, how he entered crypto, and the staking as a service business he's building now at Eon. The discussion covers a lot of great topics for crypto entrepreneurs, UX considerations when building crypto products, how Eon manages technical and security issues when staking on the behalf of others, and Eon's business model. This is a must listen for anyone building crypto products for consumers. Hope you enjoy this one. Thanks. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard, and we're joined today with Santiago Roel Santos. Thanks for joining today, Santiago. Super excited to have this conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation as well. Yeah, so Santiago's founder and president at Eon, which is described as a next-generation digital asset platform to compound your crypto. And so I'm always really excited to talk to companies building in the space because they're doing so many interesting things. In particular, what we're going to talk about today is staking and how Eon helps network participants stake their assets. So we're going to talk pretty in depth about that, which I'm really looking forward to. So I guess to start off, Santiago, would love to hear a little about your background. So uh, you know, when we chatted before, learned a little about your background. So you started off in investment banking at J.P. Morgan and the financial sponsors group, right? That's right. Yeah, I was there, and it was a great couple of years. That's where I first learned about Bitcoin. Yep. And so you were at uh, J.P. Morgan, and then you were also an investor at SageView. That was uh, what kind of investment group? That they did a lot of early stage growth equity type of investments. That's right. I was uh, mostly doing later stage of Series C, Series D okay. in internet software. Got it. And so that's really interesting because. You know, one thing I thought would be uh, interesting to talk about too was kind of how you thought about analyzing companies back then, and you know how you think. You know, a lot of people that are building in the space, I guess there are so many pre-revenue companies, right? And Series C, Series D probably mm-hmm. are, are you know well past revenue. So, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I guess at the time when you were analyzing companies how you thought about investing in them, you know, what were important metrics to you and whatnot. And then, you know, how that compares to kind of, you know, pre-revenue crypto companies these days? Definitely. No, it's a great question. And you're right. We were looking at companies that had recurring revenue. So in SaaS, so software as a service, it's a very predictable revenue model. You would have contracts with clients and the investment framework, the primary metrics. And as an investor, I think you look back and say, you know, what are the two or three things that I could ask a founder? If I only had one or two questions, what would they be? And mm-hmm. that was a thought process that we applied at SageView. And the primary metrics are two things. One, retention rate. So if you look mm-hmm. at, if you could ask for one thing, it would be, give me a whole spreadsheet of all your clients. Don't have to know the name. Just give me a, a dummy dump. And by month, how much you're paying you. 
And I think that's one metric. The second one is gross margin. Why gross margin? Because it really talks to you about the ability of a company to price their product and obtain. And it really shows up, it translates into the ultimate value that a customer perceives in the product, right? If you don't have a high gross margin, you're either in a really competitive industry or that product is just not sustainable over time. And so those were the key metrics that we were looking at at SageView. To your question around pre-revenue and crypto, I think my learnings at SageView, I've applied in crypto in a couple of ways, but I think the most important one is this notion of go-to-market which I struggle with a lot with crypto companies. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of focus on the tech, but right now I think it's starting to show when these companies are trying to ship, it's what's the use case? What is the go-to-market strategy? Whether you are a DAP, consumer-facing DAP, or an enterprise chain like Cadena or Hashgraph or Definity, a lot of these companies don't have a very particular clear use case. And I think that that's fine. And it's by virtue of, look, the space is very early. So mm-hmm. I think if we were to know all the use cases today, I think we'd be kidding ourselves. And I think that's what's very exciting in this space and why I'm involved. Yep. But um, what is most important is you know, the team building component, the company building aspect that these crypto companies are faced with today. Hiring a team, managing a team, and scaling a team and building an organization to go to market is are things that I think need a lot of work in crypto. Yep. So your comment on gross margins in particular is pretty interesting because like I hadn't thought about this before, but it makes a lot of sense. Most of my investment experience has been on the on the public market side. But mm-hmm. curious, your thoughts on with respect to margins and kind of early stage or C Series D companies, do you care about how margins change? Do you care about an absolute number? Like a 30% gross margin for a software company is pretty bad, you know, 80% higher. But if, you know, 30 is going to 40 is going to 50, that's different than, you know, it being stuck at 30 for a long time. Did you take those kind of considerations into place? It's a great question. And you're right. You have to look at the long-term defensibility of the business model. So when you peel everything back, you're like, okay, well, how big is the market and how defensible is this business model to support whatever margin you're underwriting? I'd be very cautious always in underwriting margin increase. Typically, there are very few industries, I think, that can get away with that. Certainly, some industries, even like Facebook, where you have such a big network effect on the market, you know, they make most of the money on, on revenue, but you're getting competition. And sure, they have a very big moat. Right, you know, in a social network like that, more users, they get more value and then they get more data and their ability to have really good data allows them to sell marketing dollars to brands that want to advertise on the platform. So it's a very strong network effect. But even then, I think brands, have, as an example of Facebook, it's hard to underwrite margin increase, especially in this world that is just fiercely competitive. So I think. You're absolutely right. You have to look at the long-term view of margins. As an investor, I always tend to think that unless there's a fundamental shift in the business model, like going from heavy professional services and implementation in the early days where you can understand that, for example, there'd be a lot of companies that would have one or two clients at the very beginning. In enterprise software, very typical, right? You have like, say you're doing a large implementation for a large company like Microsoft. I can understand that... In one year, there may be professional services may take a larger percentage of the overall revenue share, and professional services tend to be lower margin than strictly software, right? 80 plus. So, mm-hmm. 
I can make an adjustment in one or two years, but typically, you know, that aside, it's tough to kind of underwrite and wrap your head around a, a dramatic increase in gross margin. Typically it just goes down. Yep. Gotcha. Great. Uh, so how did you get interested in crypto? Yeah, great question. I think I was at my desk at JP Morgan at three in the morning waiting for comments or trying to turn a book. <laughs> we all know that. You know, in investment banking, as we all have been there, right? And I came across an article about this thing. It was, I think, the Zilk Road and it, all the drama behind that. And naturally, I gravitated to that and I started reading it. And I became interested for this notion that it described how you could move money pretty easily and seamlessly cross-border. And that was pretty powerful. I grew up in Mexico. And just a little bit of background in Mexico, like in other countries, remittances is a big, big market. This mm-hmm. is people moving money. So say Mexicans living in the US moving money to Mexico. And I believe it's the, it was or, or at some point was a second or first source of income for Mexican families. And this is a huge market. And the companies like Western Union and other banks charge upwards of 10, 15 cents on every dollar that is sent back. And quite frankly, I think that is one very unsustainable. And philosophically, I just struggle to understand that the people that, you know, are sending money back to their families are taking away 10, 15 cents on every transaction. Yep. And it is very slow. So that I was very interested by that. Yep. There's definitely price gouging. There's no reason it should be that high. Absolutely. Yep. So that got me excited. And the second one, I spent a lot of time studying game theory at school. And I think what was very exciting is, okay, this is for the first time ever, you have a system that relies not on trust and removes the middleman. And then you start thinking, okay, what are the other applications that they should be used for? And most industries in today's world, you know, you have to have a middleman because we don't trust each other. And that could be really powerful. So mm-hmm. my approach was just... I didn't fully appreciate all the beauty behind the Nakamoto consensus and the Bitcoin paper. But my philosophy has always been, look, get a little bit of exposure, buy it to learn. At a minimum, this is something interesting. I should get just to learn about it. And I went down the rabbit hole from there. Yep. So at this point, you were probably, you know, one or two years in as an analyst. What were some of your peers' responses? Or or did you even talk to them? Did you even talk to them about Uh, it? I did. And it was not a very popular sentiment. And to be honest, (laughs) up until 2017, it wasn't either. You know, I I became more and more, I want to say some people may have called me a fanatic. Some people I think were just tired of me pounding the table. Um, this is really interesting at a minimum, you know, consider it just an education, just buy a hundred, you know, whatever, a de minimis amount of crypto to get to learn about it. And most people, I think that there's a lot of stigma around it. And certainly back then it was the Silk Road. This is used for bad actors in the system. A lot of, I guess, preconceived notions of crypto that, you know, the common narrative at the time was Silk Road, right? Now it's ICOs and, and the fraud around that. And, I think, you know, like everything, it's it's a space that has attracted a lot of attention and for better or for worse, you know, it attracts bad actors too. And, you know, there's a lot of noise. There still is, there still will be, right? And so yep. I think uh, even today, a lot of my friends and colleagues certainly all know about it today, but there's still a lot of disagreement around it. And that, quite frankly, to me, is a good sign of a space that, look, if it's not worthy of attention, it's probably not worth spending your time 
you know, if it's not worthy of like controversy, I'd say it's, you're probably doing something wrong, you know? Yep. That's a good point. Even from like an alpha generation perspective, if everyone's on the same side of the view, it makes it a lot harder to generate alpha from an investment perspective. Absolutely. So you mentioned a little bit, you know, you study a lot of game theory and you're really interested in the Nakamoto consensus protocol. And so I guess that takes us along the lines of mining and and staking. We'll get a little more into, you know, what Eon is up Mm -hmm. to. Really excited to talk through that stuff. Uh, Would love to get, you know, for everyone who isn't familiar with staking, uh, I think you're probably the right person to talk to about it. So what is staking? Right. So I'll try to explain this in how I try to explain it to my mom and and then we can go deeper. But effectively, you know, you have, I don't know how if it's worth even talking about proof of work and proof of stake. But I think at the end of the day, these networks, right, they, they all rely on a consensus. It's like a voting scheme, right? We all know either in proof of work or proof of stake, then they, they're all, think of them as voting systems, right? You need to approve new blocks. And they rely on different incentive mechanisms to incentivize the market participants or the network participants to be interested in verifying that that block is correct right and yep. they all try to solve one thing which is this double spending problem it's like uh the listeners are familiar with the movie catch me if you can't it's like there's someone can double spend and that's an issue and that's why there needs to be someone that verifies that that's not the case and sometimes that takes a little bit of time to verify a couple of days yep. or a couple of minutes or and so at the end of the day it's a proof of stake is a very elegant solution why because and I'll go into the differences if that's uh, if that's okay. But, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So, in proof of stake, the key difference, as I see between proof of work, is this: there's more skin in the game. People in a proof of stake network need to own the underlying token in order to be able to stake. And the process of staking is quite simply this: you have a token. The staking process is you put that token as collateral. So you put it in escrow, which means you can't touch it for some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you get like a lottery ticket. And that lottery ticket allows you to be eligible to win in that particular block, be elected to validate that block. So you know, think about it this way. If you own the underlying token, you're long that project, right? You have every incentive to support the network. And mm-hmm. because if, if you're not validating blocks correctly, or if you act maliciously, right, say you want to do double spend or support a, or just verify a wrong block, then one of two things happen. One, you try to do that and the rest of the, it get, gets broadcasted and the rest of the network notices that it's, you know, a malicious attack. And you may lose your principal, which is an escrow, right? You may lose your tokens that you put in. So, you know, you don't want that to happen. So that's proof of stake, right? It's a very elegant solution because it fulfills two things that I think are pretty key here. One, decentralization, right? It is everyone that is a token holder, for the most part, can participate. Some networks have minimum requirements. So you need to have it at a minimum like 5 ETH or 30 ETH or you know, a certain amount, but it's in the grand scheme of things relative to proof of work, which we'll get there in a second, it's the barriers to entry are quite low. So it allows for a broader set of participants to stake. Yep. And again, much like in mining, you know, if, if you verify correctly, you get a reward and that reward is a called what we call a staking reward. These networks have a built-in inflation. 
So that's proof of stake. The issue with proof of work, which we've seen, I think I've started to fail in two counts. One, this notion of decentralization. You know, a lot of the Bitcoin miners, it's become a very concentrated market. Why? Because in Bitcoin and proof of work, miners compete to solve computationally intense puzzles. Mm-hmm. And they sort of do that with very specific chips called ASICs. And they're quite expensive. And so initially, in the early days, you would be mining Bitcoin with your own computer, and that'd be fine. But over time, people realize, wow, the network's pretty valuable, and this reward that I can get if I solve this puzzle very faster than everyone is pretty lucrative as the price of Bitcoin increased. And so over time, you have companies like Bitmain and others developing these very specific chips to solve these puzzles. And Effectively, it's a very energy-intensive process, and it's capital-intensive, too. And so mm-hmm. you have mining pools. The top three mining pools, at some point, you know, control anywhere from 40 to 50% of the network, the hash power, hash rate. And, and that presents a very critical issue, which is if they collude, then you have this thing called a 51% attack. And at that point, the network is pretty vulnerable to attack. And we sort of see that, not in Bitcoin, but in other smaller networks. And the last distinction I'll make, which I think is the most powerful one, is at the end of the day, these miners have less skin in the game because they don't need to own the underlying token. They just need to own the equipment in order to mine. And I guess a counter-argument to that would be, well, if the network goes down or is useless, then they have all this equipment, which is very specific, called these ASICs, which are lost, right? So they certainly have a vested interest in the network, but it creates a very, it's not as an elegant solution to proof of stake because typically they sell these tokens immediately once they're mined to cover their costs and then generate a profit. So I guess the, the long-term incentive that these miners have in supporting the network is less powerful than if in proof of stake, if you own the token. And so I hopefully that was a good sort of introduction, but I'm sure there, there may be more questions that you may have. Yeah. So one question I do have on the proof of stake side, who or how does the transaction get validated? Say like I, uh, you know, send you a proof of stake coin, like how does that transaction get validated? Right. So in that instance, Back to the lottery ticket analogy, if I get selected in that particular block, I need to verify that and I broadcast that. Okay. So as an example, in a network like Tezos, you have two different types of rewards. One is a validation reward, which is I approve. And so I sign that transaction as the baker, which is the validator. And then there are other folks that get selected as part of that same block to verify that whatever... I validate is actually correct. And so that you're incentivizing sort of a committee, one which you know broadcasts and submits this proposal, if you will, and others that um, are verifying that it is actually correct. Yep. Gotcha. So on the staking side, and I guess the benefit on the staking is if you stake, you're getting some kind of reward, like this lottery ticket kind of analogy. You're getting a, you know, some kind of percentage reward. I've seen mm-hmm. staking rewards, some of them being, you know, incredibly high. There's some of these masternode. I don't know. Do you think about masternodes in the same way as staking or are they a bit different? A bit different, but um, sort of like a hybrid model. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Eon and what you guys are up to there. Definitely. 
Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of background of why I became very interested in proof of stake and why I decided to build Eon. I think my background's in investing. I started supporting teams that were transitioning to proof of stake. And I think it became very exciting to see the industry shifting towards proof of stake and building on top of that. Certainly, networks like Ethereum have a roadmap to transition to proof of stake. You have other networks. vast majority of networks, I think, are in the mind share of crypto. I think is shifting to proof of stake. And that was very exciting. We started to see that over the last couple of years. And certainly now, I think we're in a very interesting time in if you look at sort of Carlota Perez, she talks about this sort of deployment phase, right? And I think it's a very nice S-curve of how technology adoption happens. And I think crypto has sort of gone through that phase where you had a lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum launching that opened up people's minds to the possibility of what decentralization X could deploy beyond financial use cases. And people started to think about proof of stake as a better, more scalable solution than proof of work. but we're in sort of this transition where the deployment phase, right? We're sort of in, and so a lot of these networks are set to launch in the next 12, 24 months. And for us, it's very exciting to be in a position where we ask the networks one thing, which is how are you going to secure the network when you launch? Yep. And I go back to, it's pretty key because you, if you think about in a democracy, right? Again, if you think about what these networks are, they're voting systems. People need to participate. Uh, if people don't participate, you have one or two actors can have can control the network and attack it when it's 51% of that. So say in a democracy, if you have three people voting up, showing up for voting, then it's really not a democracy because at the end of the day, they're electing a leader, right? right? So it really requires participation. And in staking, like in mining, Bitcoin mining, proof-of-work mining, you require the more people that are participating, I think the more resilient the network becomes, right? And so the idea to create Eon was helping networks secure themselves by promoting and making it super easy for token holders to stake. And Eon is effectively, a, we call ourselves a staking as a service platform, where the process of staking, while it doesn't require these expensive ASICs. It doesn't require cheap electricity. And it does require technical knowledge about the underlying protocol. It requires for you to have constantly be up time, you know, be online mm-hmm. in order to uh, validate. And so it is, while it is meant to be easier, more democratic, more accessible for the masses, it's certainly, you know, what we've seen is network participation across networks like Augur or Maker or some of these other networks is quite low. And I think we take the view that let's let's actually make this very easy for stakeholders in the system to stake. Yeah. So I you know I have some familiarity on the staking side with Decred, for example. They actually have a pretty solid wallet with a nice GUI that lets you stake. Basically their staking process is you buy a ticket and then um, you kind of stake that ticket. And it's pretty simple. They have like a rebuy ticket feature where, you know, once your ticket is returned to you, you can just like rebuy it. So you don't, I don't have to log on all the time to go go do that. But there are other coins that where it is a huge pain. Like you need to have a VPS set up. Mm-hmm. I think Zen Cash, for example, is called Horizon now. I don't know what their current status of their wallet is. But at the time when I was using it, they didn't have it through a GUI. You actually had to go work through the CLI, get it set up on a VPS make sure the VPS is cool with you being staking on their platform. So yeah, it's a huge pain. So I imagine like making that 
easier for people would help a lot of uh, network participants out and get them more interested and involved on, in this. Most definitely. I think you're absolutely right. And this is where I take my learnings from SageView, where you know I come from a world where if you don't have a great product, really nice UI, UX, easy to interact in a fiercely competitive world of enterprise software or consumer software, you're not going to survive. Yep. And I think a lot of what has been the usability of crypto is not there. And I think it's just by virtue of the space being early, but the incentives for staking are very high. And if you're not staking, you're losing out on inflation, right? Because you know, you're not earning a reward and it's like more tokens get minted. So not doing it now is we take the view that it is super critical to have a super easy to use platform where users can click of a button, start staking. Yep. In, in networks like Cosmos, for example, you have this concept called slashing, which is if, for example, your computer goes down, your server goes down, and you get chosen to validate and you're not validating, you lose your principal. So just imagine this world in five years' time where you have billions of dollars putting it up as collateral. Say that one network participants has millions or billions of dollars being staked and their server goes down. Yep. <laughs> and they get splashed. I mean, just imagine it, whether it be the fiduciary responsibilities, if it's a fund or if it's one large token holder, this is something that should be outsourced to someone that is 100% dedicated to doing as a service. Yep. Not as, you know, not certainly a fund who is focusing on finding best investments. You know? Yep. So that's our view. That inflation idea is interesting. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, not buying stocks, not buying real estate when interest rates are super low. Like you're just going to, mm. your own cash is just, uh, you know, it's just sitting in the banks, not doing anything. Can you walk us through kind of like a scenario, how it works? Okay, so I want to work with you guys. I own asset ABC, and now I'm ready right. to, you know, stake it and have you guys stake it on my behalf. So how would that work? Right. So at the moment, you know, you would go to our site, you would register, you would connect your wallet, and it would be, you know, you would sign up, you would give us a little bit of information to make sure that, you know, you pass KYC, AML. And once you're registered, you'll be able to stake all your asset portfolio with us. So you have to an ABCD. The flow would be sign all the docs, register, you're on the platform, you choose your networks, you kind of see what reward on an annual basis you stand to make, whether it be what we call the staking yield would be, so you would have an idea of how much you would earn on an annual basis mm -hmm. uh, if you compound or if you don't decide to compound. And it would be a very easy flow. You would start staking and then there's a dashboard where you're able to see the rewards as they come in, right? And it's super, very transparent. It gets broadcasted in the in the Explorer, whether by network, you know, you'll be able to verify if what we're earning on a per block basis and how much of that you're entitled, right? And so you'll see very easy, very transparent. Our business model is of the reward itself. We only take a flat fee of that reward. Mm -hmm. We don't charge a platform fee. It's simply if we are earning a reward for you, we'll take a very small commission. And think of it as uh, trading. Right? Yep. If you own stocks, you log in, you deposit some money, and here you're, you're not depositing money. What's important here is you're not giving us your private keys. You're not handing over custody at We've thought about taking custody. Mm -hmm. 
we're thinking through that. There are some regulatory implications of that that we need to be very thoughtful of. So certainly for the moment, you know, you'll give us the right to go and earn that reward for you. Okay. But you won't hand over your tokens. You know, you okay. won't deposit your tokens with us, which is pretty important because you don't stand to lose them by working with us. Right. Yeah, that's an important distinction, I think, because actually Faison and I, we were just talking yesterday about this uh, announcement by BlockFi. They're going to be mm-hmm. offering like six percent yeah. or whatever on uh, BTC. I think it's just BTC. I'm not sure if they're doing if the ETH or not, but I think so. But yeah. So my immediate concern is where are these private keys going to sit? Do I get to keep them, or they keep on on my behalf? Mm-hmm. If they keep them on my behalf, I think Faison was asking. So what's the situation there? Like, is, yeah, are they, yeah. Do they is it insured? Yeah, because like anytime anyone wants to hold your cryptocurrencies my first two questions are always around like what's the custody mm-hmm. situation and what's the if you're going to hold it what's the insurance exactly. situation so not having to hand over custody alleviates i would say the majority of the pain. of concerns because yeah. these are all relatively new technologies exactly you're absolutely right and um like blockfi my understanding is that they're working with a third-party custodian that would ensure your loss of principle if for example they get breached or they would ensure that but in our case you're absolutely right the only thing that you I guess if, if someone were to ask, you know, then what should I look out for when I'm trying to choose a staking as a service provider? And I think a couple of things, but certainly the most important is what does a technology, what does a security look like from a sort of infrastructure perspective, right? How do I make sure that this staking provider is going to be earning the rewards in a consistent, reliable manner? And it really just distills down to how secure their infrastructure is to make sure that their servers are constantly up and online signing and validating. So that is certainly the most important one. The other one is counterparty risk. The reason why I started Eon with my partners is we couldn't get comfortable with some of the the staking providers out there that would do this for you. They would simply just say, hey, here's my staking address. Send over, not send over your tokens, but just give me the right to go out and earn this reward. And you do this by signing and sending it to broadcasting and sending you know, message on the network. Some protocols are varies, but let's just keep it at that. And it was like, okay, well, what is the agreement? There's no agreement in place here. There's no notion of what happens if their server goes down? Like, are they guaranteeing me a reward? How do I forfeit? How do I cancel after a certain block if I don't want to use them? Like, how do I do this? Who are they? What's the counterparty risk? Who do I call right. to set up and onboard? <laughs> yep. I mean, these are things that look, look, I mean, at the end of the day, crypto has gone through a phase where it's been easy for a lot of these companies, which we now call incumbents, the Coinbase of the world, Binance. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to do customer support. It is terrible across the board. I haven't found a crypto company out there that has best in class customer support. And to me, that's pretty alarming. And, and it's exciting because this space, I think, will, in order for it to really thrive, you need to have and rise to the occasion, if you will, of servicing customers in the way that they are used to by a type of Amazon best-in-class customer support. Yep, Money's on the line, and we take the view that this is where my background in, and the team's background in coming from traditional consumer or enterprise software this world is very competitive. And in order for you to succeed, I think customer service is a key pillar. Yep. So, so yeah. You had uh, talked a little bit uh, before customer service about this idea of what happens if the server goes down? Am I still getting my rewards? So 
for you guys, how do you handle uh, availability and security, I guess, to that point? Definitely. Yeah, we've thought a lot about how we can go about our internal security and infrastructure. We use, we're constantly rotating public IPs. We're signing on a, you know, behind the firewall. So no one actually knows what our you know IP address is. And so they can't do sort of a DDoS attack and try to put our servers down. Pretty robust infrastructure. We think that to make sure that we're constantly online, we are using sort of double or triple redundancy to make sure that, for example, if they're in the event that AWS in the East Coast goes down, we're relying not only on AWS, but we have, you know, Azure or Google Cloud, right, as a backup to make sure they're constantly online. So what's the worst that can happen, I think, is what you're asking, right? What's the worst, If you're staking with us, what's the absolute worst that could happen? I think you, you forego that reward. So our server goes down, you miss out on that particular reward. We're actually exploring really interesting solutions right now to insure against those type of losses, mm -hmm. whether it be, I mean, as you know, insurance in crypto is very expensive. And a lot of the times, historically, if exchanges, for example, have been hacked, they take, they redeem users at that point. It's just by virtue, they're making so much money on trading fees, that they're able to cover those losses. For us, I think the worst that could happen is our server goes down, we miss a particular block rewards. And at that point, we'll look to and you know make whole the user yeah. right for that particular. But what what's at loss only is not all your token holdings because again we don't have that. No one can steal them. We don't have your private keys. The worst that can happen is for you to miss out on that particular block reward, which would be say it's the annual inflation of a network is ten percent. So on that particular block reward, it might be a very small amount that we will make you whole for that. For us not earning that reward for you okay and uh you know i know a while back people were having some trouble with cloud and vps providers that didn't want their services used for cryptocurrency related mining or staking have you run into any issues with your cloud providers around that stuff or or has that not been not an issue uh right now if anything i think we've seen microsoft and amazon you know, be pretty supportive of, of the space. And I think they recognize that it's, okay. it's going to be a big industry and a revenue generator for them. Yeah. And uh, just looking through your site, I notice as of right now, it looks like there's, uh, you know, 14 different tokens that can be staked. Other than, you know, maybe something like just popularity, do you have a qualification criteria for what comes onto your platform or anything that, you know, is a red flag? Definitely. And just to be clear, those are networks that not all of those have launched. They've certainly raised and people have participated in token sales. And so most of them will go live over the next 12, 24 months. But yes, we do. I think that's one of, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the key areas for us is how we qualify tokens and what we list. You know, we are the belief that we need to have internal guidelines and we do to make sure that we're supporting tokens one are to our extent of how the law has been interpreted in the u.s and precedent that are not going to be deemed securities and again this is a shading a criteria that we're using internally and also just from a business case you know we prioritize larger networks and then from there it's just how big the revenue opportunity is for us, how many token holders there are, and then start supporting those networks. But the legal and regulatory component is something that we've spent a lot of time going deep on. And our first hire, just to give you a sense of perspective, was a general counsel. Okay. Just 
you know, regulators were registered in the U.S. We want to operate uh, within the framework of the U.S. And I think that's super important for the health of this ecosystem. But as you know, regulators are playing catch up. And our core initiative at Eon is to help educate regulators and bring clarity to a proof of stake, help them understand it. I think there's a very interesting narrative around energy efficiency, around decentralization that proof of stake enables. And we're of the belief that you know, regulators, I think, in the U.S. have been very welcoming in creating a sandbox environment to stimulate dialogue. And us projects, whether it be networks or service providers like us, I think our duty and responsibility is to take an active approach in approaching regulators and helping them understand the benefits of proof of stake. Uh, how is this going to be taxed? Are they going to be taxed as dividends or are they not going to be taxed as ordinary income like proof of work mining? I'd make the argument that it's more like a dividend, Bitcoin mining which is treated as unemployed income or self-employed income, which is taxed as ordinary income. But these are all looming questions. Yep. And I think there's a big opportunity to clarify. And insofar as we don't clarify it, it's going to hinder growth of this space. It's interesting as far as the dividend argument goes, because uh, so we just spoke to, in a couple episodes ago, we spoke to uh, Zach at Token Tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it, what we understood was basically that from a UX perspective, just making handling taxes easily for mm. customers is a big reason why they've been so successful. So I imagine that's like that's another area your customers could benefit from as well. Because if, if once there is some guidance and clarity around how that works, they don't have to worry about um, you know yeah. all kinds of uh, you could get a simple readout from you guys basically. Absolutely, and that's something that really differentiates us from the get-go. It's we are going to allow seamless reporting and tax. And we're actually thinking of working with Zach around that. And awesome. Yeah, it's at the end of the day, I think the way we're approaching this initiative is if we can get accounting firms and CPAs to sign off on the treatment of how you record it and file, then that's how I think we stand to then make the argument to the IRS to issue a guideline. Because right now there's guidelines of proof of work mining that uh, 2014 21 guidance, which at the time, proof of stake was not even around. And so I think it's worthy of a conversation back with them saying, this is why it's very different than proof of work mining. Yep. And so that's a very big initiative for us. And talking to our institutional clients, they, they take a very big interest in this because of obviously the tax implications between a dividend and ordinary income is pretty, pretty attractive. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yep. And I think that's what, you know, going back to why it's very exciting, one, to build in a bear market, but more so, I think the narrative last year was what's going to get institutions really excited about crypto? And I think that narrative didn't go anywhere, largely for a variety of reasons. But I think it was exciting because, hey, if you're a hedge fund, it's an uncorrelated asset class. Bitcoin's been uncorrelated for the last 10 years to a lot of different, you know, to the stock market and to everything. So it's like, it's, it fulfills a notion of digital gold. But I think the regulatory overhang just gives a lot of people pause. And I think what gets me very excited about what we're doing at Eon is in a low interest rate environment, when you have sort of a programmatically built in yield into these networks, it's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. And whether you know, you're know you talking about the average yield, the average payout on an annual basis is 10%, 15%. Some networks, as you pointed out, pay out upwards of 20, 30, 50, right? But in the long term, we think that it, it will hover around 10%, 8%. And that's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, there's a lot of things that, that need to happen for us to get there. But that, I think, reinvigorates and gets Wall Street very interested 
in crypto, particularly in proof of stake, because if I can create like a structured product where I bundle up and say, hey, here's a portfolio of proof of stake tokens, they all on average pay 10%. The reward obviously is paid in tokens. So you need to factor in the volatility because they'll care about what does that translate in fiat denominated terms. Yep. So if I can abstract away that volatility somehow, and, and there's a counterparty that can take a bet against that, or you know, you have in traditional finance, these things called structured products, which they're a package of commodities or stocks. And uh, the correlation and the volatility factors in into the type of return, whether it be 5%, say in fiat denominated terms. But that's very powerful in a low interest rate environment. And it's yep. extremely powerful because it's very, think about it, it's super transparent. Like you're able to see the health of these networks you're able to see the predictability of it. And going back to my days at Sage, where I'd be investing in enterprise software, which the primary metric that you asked is recurring revenue. You're able to actually, in a very reliable manner, understand the predictability and the recurring stream of these staking rewards. Mm-hmm. So that just, in a sense, just blows my mind because it's it's a new paradigm. Yep. And it's a, it's a new category of fixed income, if you will. Yep. So I guess let's talk a little bit on the competitive landscape side. Another company we've heard of, for example, is like Staked, Vest, and Bison Tails, a few others. So how do you guys kind of compare and contrast with those guys? Yeah, great question. We know them all. I think they're all doing a great service. What I'll say, and just I'll preface this, it's, it's very important to have competition in this space because you never want to be the single staking or validator in a network. It's sort of it defeats a purpose, right? Because the network is exposed. So we welcome competition. I think it's important to keep the network sufficiently decentralized. Yep. A lot of a key distinctions are some just offer disservice to institutions. So large token holders, large hedge funds. Mm-hmm. We offer it to everyone. We don't have a minimum. And it's really our philosophy in this space, you know, to keep it open, to keep it accessible to all. And so that's a primary distinction. Some might just be a little bit more focused on a particular type of a network and not support others. Mm-hmm. As long as it passes our internal checklist, we'll support the network. And so another distinction there. And the third, I think, is illegal. And it's probably the most important one, at least at the moment. We've created and spent a lot of time working through our internal agreement. So when you sign up for our service, we want to make sure the clients fully understand the process of staking. Mm-hmm. We want to educate someone. The last thing I want is for someone to come to our platform that has a token, start staking. And one interesting and very important point in staking is we talked about putting your tokens in collateral. And it varies by network, the time and the that you need to hold, put those tokens as collateral. And that's very important for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Why? Because say that you have tokens and you're staking and you put it on as collateral. That could be up to three weeks, that could be a week, that could be a couple of days or hours. If that token, all of a sudden, the price changes dramatically and you want to either sell or buy more or have access to those tokens, you won't. Right. And I think that's super important to educate the consumer or your user. This is an example of they need to be made aware of the intricacies behind staking, because you can envision a scenario where they want to capitalize or sell the token's value is going down dramatically or it's going up or what have you, and they can't access this token. So we are of the belief that we are, most of them don't even have a front-facing platform. We're extremely focused on 
when we launch, we'll be having a platform, a dashboard where people, you know, the visibility is there, transparency is there, everything that we do, you'll be able to understand exactly how much we're charging you. You'll be able to audit that. You'll be able to easily calculate and, and report your taxes. And so those are, you know, again, we're taking the approach of we're building a traditional consumer facing platform here and UI UX is extremely important for us in making this extremely easy for users to use and understand. And I think that is a very important distinction that we're taking. And on the back end, we're also, as an organization, we are creating a proof of stake alliance, if you will, to help clarify a lot of these regulatory uncertainties. And, you know, it's certainly not appreciated from a consumer standpoint, but I think in the long run, a big initiative that we're doing internally at Eon is making sure that everything that we do is fully compliant in the U.S. and also helping educate regulators about the space and help clarify a lot of these uncertainties around proof of stake. And so those are key distinctions. Gotcha. The last one I'll raise is uh, we're offering a very competitive fee. You know, some folks out there are charging upwards of 15, 20% on every reward that we're making, that they're earning for users. We're probably the most competitive in the market right now. Uh, our rate is 5%. And yep. that's just our view that that is sustainable. And for us, we see the long-term value of that customer. Sort of the LTV, as you would think about in traditional software, is particularly high. Mm-hmm. As long as we are consistently and reliably earning staking rewards and you can stake all your assets with us, I think uh, charging... 15, 20% is probably not sustainable. Yep. I mean, that makes sense. Again, you know, mining pools are not exact analogy to staking as a service, but I guess they can kind of be thought of in similar ways in terms of fees and kind of offloading certain, uh, you know, aspects of your own investment workflow to elsewhere. Mm. Do you think exchanges could offer a staking service to their customers or do you think that doesn't really fit into their wheelhouse? I think over time, they'll have to. They won't have a choice. They make most of their money on volume yep. trading fees, right? And But certainly, I think they will get into the space. We've had conversations with a few exchanges. I think their customers will demand it. And they won't be competitive if they don't. Mm-hmm. The problem is they need to think through... It's like fractional reserve banking, right? If they're staking all their customers' assets or a high percentage... They need to be very mindful because they say that all their users want to trade and or withdraw tokens. But if they're being staked, they can't access them. Yep. So you have a run in the bank kind of problem. So I think they will start and they will, will certainly offer it to customers. They'll probably wait it out a couple of innings to first understand user behavior around staking. And yep. that will allow them to model what the capital reserve requirement, if you will, to make the banking analogy. This is what percentage of the total customer's assets they are able to stake, which is still an issue, I think. I think, you know, this is why we believe that a staking native fully focused on just staking as a service, our incentives are more aligned with the user. We are only doing this service. We think it will be a huge market and our incentives are just more aligned with the user. Our simple fiduciary responsibility as a company is to be the best in earning this reward in a safe, consistent, reliable manner for users. And we don't necessarily care about volume or anything else. Yep. And I think that's a key distinction between us and exchanges. Yep. 
So you've been super generous with your time, Santiago. Really looking forward to staying in touch and see how things proceed. I also want to sign up. So when are you guys going to be ready? Yeah, it's a great question. We've been, we're doing a lot of work on finishing touches on our platform. I think likely, don't my engineers might kill me here, but probably by the end of, <laughs> by the, end of the month, but like everything, okay. we'll certainly keep you posted. We'd love to follow up and I think you'll, you'll love the product and hopefully it feels and looks and feels like non-crypto, which is, I think if people come to us and they're like, this doesn't look like crypto, but it has the upside of crypto is kind of our primary metric of how we build UI UX internally. So hopefully by the end of March, we'll have a product, a platform that is open. We're operating internally with a few clients in private beta with one or two networks as a trial (laughs) run. But uh, yeah, we hope to be live and accessible to everyone uh, by the end of the month. Awesome. So we'll put links in the show notes to, to all these things too. But anything else you would want people to know about Eon? No, I think in the meantime, I think our first focus is trying to educate folks about staking. And we want to be thought leaders in this space. And so I would encourage everyone to go and, and read about staking. And we're making a big push on this by listening to this podcast. You've been very generous, but also we have a, we'll be putting out a lot of thought pieces in, on Medium about staking, some background, some of the topics we've touched on here. And we'd love to just hear from folks about what they think about staking. I think it's a very exciting space. And this type of dialogue is great because we want to listen to uh, the market and our customers and what they want. Yep. And I think that's most important for us. And that requires active dialogue. So I would encourage everyone to write in, either sign up or go to our site and just uh, shoot us a note, sign up so that we can alert them when we launch, but also take a look at our Medium channel where we'll be posting some good uh, materials for people to get educated and, and some more background. Yep. Awesome. Hey, everyone. This is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.